From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. University scientists working in West Virginia report that mountaintop removal coal mining is not only bad for the environment, but also carries the risk of cancer for area residents. We found that dust that we collected from residential communities close to mountaintop removal mining sites caused changes in human lung cells that are indicative of cancer development and progression. Also, the universe explained using only the thousand most common words. Science, of course, is is very intellectual, sometimes activity, but equally it's important to remember that it's a human activity and as such it's full of passion and creativity and and the aim of the book is to bring some of that back into the story and, and to speak to people's hearts, not to their minds only. The Cosmos and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mountaintop removal is a controversial and highly mechanized method of reaching coal seams in Appalachia. Miners blast the top layers of rock and earth off ridgelines and dump the debris called overburden into valleys below. Now researchers have discovered this mining method is not merely destructive to the environment, but also creates dust that can promote lung cancer. Their study is published in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal, and Dr. Michael Hendricks of Indiana University Bloomington is one of the authors. He joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Good to be here. So in your study, what did you find? We found that dust that we collected from residential communities close to mountaintop removal mining sites caused changes in human lung cells that are indicative of cancer development and progression. When we also exposed cells to dust from control communities farther away from mining, we did not find those changes. And you're saying the most dangerous part, at least in terms of Uh, getting cancerous changes in lungs has to do more with the rock that the coal is embedded in than the coal itself. That's true. It seems to be mostly what's called the overburden, the rock in the soil above the coal that's released during the excavation. It's released through the use of explosives and the use of large excavation equipment that raises dust levels in the nearby communities that can cause these types of health problems. And what are the uh, ingredients from that overburden uh, that gets uh, into the dust that do you think is related to cancer? It seems to be a complex mixture. We've found elevated levels of silica on a pretty consistent basis. We've also seen elevations in levels of molybdenum and aluminum uh, and also in some compounds that are indicative of perhaps particles from the coal itself. So just how are such particles related to cancer in people? The particles, when they're inhaled, can cause a variety of changes to the body's response to try to to deal with that foreign agent. Some of those are not specific to the chemical itself, but other types of chemicals or elements, such as silica or molybdenum, can be uh, particularly tumor-promoting. So the mechanisms by which that happens are not totally understood, but it involves a variety of changes to to cells in response to these foreign agents. How close are the households at increased risk of cancer uh, to mountaintop removal? In this study, we collected the dust samples within a mile of an active mountaintop removal mining site. In other studies that we've done, we found evidence for elevations in 
particulate matter in the air within two or three miles. We don't know exactly what the um, progression would be as you move away from the mining, but I suspect that most of the effects are probably within five to ten miles of active mining. Now, how important are your results, uh, Professor? There's been concern that mountaintop removal might be related uh, to cancer, might be associated with it. But what does this study do? This study is an important new development in my view because the previous studies, by and large, were epidemiological types of studies that looked at correlations between where people lived and their health status. So we've been able to document... Uh, a number of occasions that there's higher cancer incidence and mortality, including lung cancer, for people that live near these sites. But until this study, we didn't have direct evidence linking the environmental conditions in these communities to actual biological changes in human uh, lung cells. So this is an important new development in the research line. So how many people are afflicted by lung cancer in these regions close to mountaintop removal compared to people living further away? We have done studies that estimate that people that live in the mountaintop mining regions might experience an additional 60,000 or so cases of cancer. That's total cancer, not just lung cancer. But the extent of the lung cancer would be a sizable percentage of that. And, of course, people are going to say, well, a lot of people in Appalachia smoke. How did you handle that? In the epidemiological studies that we've done, we've shown that the lung cancer risks are greater even when we control for the effects of smoking. So it's not just a smoking effect. And in this most recent study, we exposed human lung cells to this dust, and it was only the dust collected from the mining communities that caused the cancer changes in the cells. Dr. Hendricks, uh, who's most at risk uh, in these communities of developing lung cancer? People who are at greater risk of developing lung cancer specifically are probably relatively older, and the risk of it is concentrated if you engage in other risks. So smoking, for example, it's probably a greater risk than exposure to the dust itself. People who maybe have other types of health conditions may be more vulnerable to air pollution exposures as well. What kind of risks do uh, very young people, uh, babies, infants, uh, young children Mm -hmm. run from this? Mm -hmm. We've done a couple of studies that have looked at health risks for children or for infants. We found most disturbingly that the rates of birth defects are higher for mothers who lived in mountaintop mining areas during the time that they were pregnant compared to mothers who did not again, controlling for other risks. Uh, We've also found that children that live in the mining communities are more likely to perform poorly at school, which is an indication of poorer cognitive development. So it's possible that children who are exposed to these environmental conditions are also suffering. So what do your findings mean now for the future of mountaintop removal, this part of the coal industry, in terms of health safety? In my opinion, we have enough evidence from this study and from others on both the public health impacts and the environmental impacts that this form of mining should be discontinued. It's environmentally irresponsible, and it's a danger to public health. Michael Hendricks is a professor of applied health science at Indiana University. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's almost Halloween, and the kids will be out trick-or-treating for candy. And while you might worry about their teeth, there's another more potent risk. Traces of the powerful neurotoxin lead can be found in some candy. 
This isn't a new problem. Ten years ago, we reported on lead in chili-flavored sweets imported from Mexico. That problem was solved, but the California Department of Public Health has found lead in some candies made in the U.S. Youth Radio's Raphael Johns has the story. The Jelly Belly headquarters in Vacaville, California, is kind of like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. There's candy everywhere. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of Herb Roland, our chairman of the Bean, I'd like to welcome you to the Jelly Belly Candy Company. The place smells like a mixture of citrus, strawberries, and pure sugar. Our top three flavors are Berry Cherry, Butter Popcorn, and Black Licorice. So, Very Cherry, Butter Popcorn, and Black Licorice. But Black Licorice in particular may not be as sweet as it sounds. Earlier this year, Jelly Belly and other candy manufacturers, like Trader Joe's and Panda, got a notice of violation. The nonprofit Center for Environmental Health found these companies' black licorice tested positive for lead. Jelly Belly declined to comment. The Center for Environmental Health isn't releasing its test results. Nobody should have to be a toxicologist just to buy candy, right? But Carolyn Cox is. She's also the research director at the Center for Environmental Health. Lead is what I like to call a stunningly toxic metal. A metal that can affect the developing brain. Obviously, how much of an effect depends on how contaminated the candy is and what other sources of lead kids are exposed to. Cox says cumulative exposure to lead can cause problems in school. They're going to get lower grades. They're going to have more behavior problems. And that damage to the brain is, is essentially permanent. The Food and Drug Administration recommends a maximum of 0.1 parts per million lead in candy. That sounds tiny, but even a tiny amount could make you sick. If lead is our problem as consumers, it's also a big problem for the candy industry. Laura Shumo is the Director of Scientific and Regulatory Affairs at the National Confectioners Association, the candy lobby, with its 600-member companies. It absolutely is something that companies are aware of, and it has allowed our member companies to investigate their own processes and their own supply chain and understand the sourcing of these ingredients and how the, the risk of lead, they have as low of levels as possible. Ten years ago, one of the ingredients that came under fire was lead-tainted chili powder on spicy Mexican sweets. Now, the culprit is the lead of molasses, which is one of the main ingredients in traditional black licorice. Sometimes, this lead is the result of pollutants in the soil or agricultural products like pesticide, which can contaminate the sugarcane grown around the world that is then used to make molasses. And once that lead gets in, it's hard to get out. Again, here's the candy lobby's Laura Shumo. There aren't very many mitigation techniques to take lead out of an ingredient once it has been exposed. So in order to ensure that the food supply has very safe levels, what manufacturers need to do is to monitor their ingredients and to test the ingredients and that those levels are meeting regulatory standards. The government currently doesn't make companies test all their ingredients before putting them into candy. The Center for Environmental Health finalized a settlement at the end of October but many of the retailers and candy makers named in the suit have already agreed to pay fines and bring down lead levels in all the licorice candies they sell to below 0 0.035 parts per million by December. One small step towards a... 
world of less contamination. For Living on Earth, I'm Raphael Joms. Raphael reports for Youth Radio. This story was edited by Ike Sriskandaraja. Coming up, there's a new game in town, Carbon Capture and Recycle. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A Texas company has launched one of the first commercial operations to capture CO2 and recycle it into commodities, including baking soda. The Skyonic Corporation flipped the switch at a cement plant in San Antonio on October 21st, and in a year expects to capture some 75,000 tons of global warming CO2 and turn it into industrial liquids and solids to sell at a profit. Skyonic says its process can also be used to recycle carbon from power plants. The U.S. Department of Energy invested $28 million in the venture, and its acting assistant secretary, Christopher Smith, told me why. Over the last few years, we've committed over $6 billion to put in place real-world projects uh, that are taking CO2 that otherwise would be going into the atmosphere and capturing it and putting it to beneficial use. So that helps offset the costs of capturing the CO2 in the first place. So uh, we see that as sort of a win-win. What is unique about what Skyonic is doing? Well, Skyonic is a, is a plant that's using uh, direct mineralization of emitted flue gases, which is different from many of the other projects that we have, separating CO2, compressing it, and then using it for other sources. So instead of having CO2 in a gaseous or in a compressed liquid form, you can actually turn it into a mineralized form that can be used in sodium bicarbonate or other useful products that then have some sort of saleable value. Now, as I understand it, Skyonics, a process turns out sodium bicarbonate. That's baking soda, I guess. I used to brush my teeth with it sometimes. Um, Then sodium carbonate itself, hydrochloric acid, and then what? It can make sodium hypochlorite, otherwise known as bleach. Yeah, and bleach. So those are all the, the, the four main products that would come out of this plant. How much sodium bicarbonate will this plant produce, and how does that compare to the demand for sodium bicarbonate here in the United States? Well, in the grand scheme of things, you know, sodium bicarbonate is not going to be a large enough market to uh, alleviate the issues throughout all the CO2 that we have to capture. But this is a, an important first step uh, to commercialize some processes, to take some things that we know in the laboratory, deploy them out into the field, and have the result of actually reducing the amount of CO2 that's going up into the environment. So um, as I understand it, you could also use all this bicarbonate uh, to make limestone, which of course is an ingredient in cement. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it could be used for for limestone. It could be used for road material. So, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about these processes is that as you find ways to create new sources of uh, material like sodium carbonate, and you do have new sources for sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate, you will uh, subsequently find new uses for it. Now that Skyonic has its first commercial facility up and running, what do you think that means for other businesses who are trying to make money by uh, capturing and uh, recycling carbon? Well, that's a, that's a really important question, and that's, I think, an opportunity to talk about one of our other really important projects that we have uh, that's called Petronova that's a coal-fired power plant just south of Houston. In this case, it's simply a retrofit of the existing uh, coal-fired power plant. They're compressing the CO2, They're putting it into a pipeline and they're transporting it to a depleted oil field and using that CO2 to produce additional barrels of oil. But Chris, it sounds a bit ironic if you capture CO2 to get more fossil fuel. Doesn't that keep adding to the climate problem? 
Well, I mean, here's the way that you should think about that. If you have more oil that's available domestically, that doesn't mean that the economy is going to be using more oil. What that means is that you're going to be importing fewer barrels of oil from other countries. You're doing a lot of really useful things. Uh, you're importing less oil, which means you're not bringing it from distant sources. You're creating opportunities right here in the United States, including uh, jobs and economic development. You're increasing our balance of trade. The CO2 is being sequestered. You're producing a barrel of oil that never would have been produced otherwise, but you're not increasing demand. Now, how do you think that uh, President Obama's uh, proposed power plant rules uh, affect this kind of business? Well, this is going to be creating a new market for these, uh, these type of projects. It's going to be a new incentive for companies to, to innovate, to move forward, to reduce the cost of capture. And indeed, in the case of a project like Skyonic that we're talking about today, find new beneficial uses for that CO2. Supporting projects like this, what's the risk that uh, funds are getting diverted from uh, alternative energy? Well, there's still a tremendous interest in all of the research and development we're doing here within the Department of Energy. Uh, Wind, solar, enhanced geothermal, nuclear. But we also have to uh, think about the energy sources of today, because not only here domestically in the United States, but also around the world, there's a lot of coal that's being burned, there's a lot of coal that's being used, and uh, we have to deal with that. So we have to come up with smart solutions. And you have to uh, invest in a lot of different areas because uh, science being what it is, you don't know where it's going to take you. Every time that we have a success like this, every time that we're able to take something from the lab scale and deploy it out to the field, it's important because we're taking an idea and we're turning it into a reality. One more question before you go. Um, Right now in the American economy, there's not really a price for carbon, at least on a national basis. To what extent are businesses like Skyonic going to be viable without a price for carbon? Well, I mean, that's actually a really good question. Over time, we're going to need a price on carbon in order to to capture CO2 at the scale that one would need in order to confront the challenges of, of climate change. But for now, it's really important that we move forward on these utilization projects like Skyonic, like Petronova, in which you can take the CO2 and get some positive beneficial use out of them. And that helps uh, cover the cost of capturing the CO2 in the first place. Christopher Smith is Acting Assistant Secretary of Energy. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas produces a huge amount of dirty water, and it has to be disposed of, often down an injection well. But a number of businesses are working on technology to clean it up. As the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports, that's a big challenge. Inside a big industrial building not far from downtown Pittsburgh, Mike Broker shows off what he hopes is the next big thing in cleaning up the fracking industry. We have three eight-foot diameter satellite dishes. These are the most common satellite dishes in the world, uh, typically used for radio communications. You might say these are no ordinary satellite dishes, but that's the thing. These are totally ordinary satellite dishes. What Broker's company puts on the surface of these dishes, now that's the not-so-ordinary thing going on here. You can see it here. Uh, This has a a covering on it, but this uh, is a Uh, kind of a vinyl-type material uh, that does have some flexibility to it that allows you to get uh, about 95% reflectivity. That reflectivity is crucial. The company's called Epiphany Solar Water Systems. It uses solar energy to distill clean water. The company was started a few years ago to clean up drinking water in the developing world. But then something else came along. Uh, And then, uh, then came the Marcellus Shale opportunity 
Each well that's fracked in the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania produces about a million gallons of dirty water. And you can't just flush this down the drain. Fracking companies are now reusing a lot of this water for other frack jobs, or they're sending it to deep injection wells, often in Ohio. But injection comes with its own problems, like earthquakes. So cleaning the water up could make financial and environmental sense. Epiphany reworked its technology to deal with this fracking wastewater. Epiphany's system uses those satellite dishes and converts them into intense solar heat collectors. Through a series of pipes, it heats up the dirty frack water in a contraption the size of a dorm fridge. It's what's called a mechanical vapor recompression crystallizer. It's basically a still, the same contraption bootleggers use to make moonshine. The same concept. It is distillation. They make whiskey, but you guys make... Pure water. Broker hopes the company's contraption will be deployed on well pads throughout the Marcellus Shale and other places. It's already got three in the field with different gas companies, though he can't say which ones. The system is designed to clean up produced water. That's the water that flows out of a well continuously, along with gas and other liquids, after it's been put into production. That water has been sitting underground for hundreds of millions of years, and that makes for a headache to clean up. You've got water that, um, that has a tremendous amount of salt in it, about 18% salt. Uh, by example, the ocean has about 3 to 4% salt. Salt destroys equipment, so Epiphany has had to use materials that won't corrode. The salt also presents a challenge to other technologies Epiphany is competing with. Reverse osmosis, for instance, uses a membrane, essentially a filter, to strain the salt out of seawater. To get the water through the membrane, you have to apply pressure to it. But the saltier the water, the more pressure you need. The issue is that with flowback water and produced water, the salinity is so high that you have to push very, very hard. And that risks rupturing the membrane. Megan Mauder is an engineer at Carnegie Mellon University. Mauder's team has created a special membrane that will allow water vapor to go through it, but no liquids. Dirty water stays back. Clean vapor travels through. Ah. No? Oh, there it goes. In her lab at Carnegie Mellon, Mauder shows how the system works. There is now water coming out of this reservoir, coming in here, across the membrane, and then discharging back there. Salty water is heated up and piped to a tiny membrane, a small white semicircle of plastic cloth. On the other side of the membrane, there's cold water. So through simple condensation, clean water flows out of the system. The key, though, is getting the membrane just right, Mauder says. So this particular sample is a uh, millipore membrane. It's very similar to the polymer that is used to make Gore-Tex. Mauder says she's a long way from having a product that can be commercialized. But if there's ever a machine that can clean up frack water cheaply, some think it will have no shortage of buyers. The research firm Lux found the market for wastewater treatment from oil and gas is about a billion dollars right now. And it could grow to $9 billion by the next decade. But not everyone thinks that these new technologies will ever make that money. Brent Giles studies the water market for Lux. He says a lot of startups got into the market thinking they could solve the frack water problem. A lot of the startups that we see in, in produced water um, and flowback water is, are, are, are fairly naive, and they've got a solution. And um, as soon as they started seeing 
frack water issues show up in the New York Times and, and newspapers like that, they they kind of did a 180 and decided that they were going to become experts in the oil and gas space. Um, and that hasn't worked out for a lot of them. Why hasn't it worked out? Well, Giles says, it's the water. In the Marcellus, most of these technologies, these more advanced technologies, have utterly failed to treat the water. It's such low-quality water that the, the technologies crash and burn when they try to when they try to treat it. In contrast, companies that use more low-tech solutions, like prepping the wastewater to be reused in future frack jobs, have been much more successful. Part of the problem is that the type and quantity of water produced in oil and gas wells changes over the lifetime of a well. There's a lot of water that comes out during fracking. After the well is fracked, the well goes into production. During that period, the water that comes out of the well gradually gets saltier and saltier over time. Also, there's a lot less of it than when it's getting fracked. So creating a technology to treat all those scenarios is difficult. Giles says it's just cheaper and easier to reuse that frack water or inject it underground. Well, we've seen a lot of people try. Um, and we've seen a lot of people just not meet the numbers that the oil companies are asking for. Broker of Epiphany Solar Water says his company is already meeting the price point the industry wants. And others say those prices are subject to change. Annie Lane is with the research firm Battelle. Lane is working on a reverse osmosis system that uses multiple membranes. The industry is very interested in potential changes in, in policy and regulations. Lane says she's getting more interest from oil and gas companies and technologies like hers that can deal with this dirty water. They see continued use of injection wells actually as being threatened um, due to possible changes in policy. So they're interested in identifying alternatives. She thinks one day the water will be more valuable cleaned up and above ground than pumped down a hole. I'm Reed Frazier. Reed's story comes to us from the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Many of us have clunky old TVs or obsolete computer clutter. And despite good intentions, chances are when we finally get rid of it, we won't recycle it, according to a survey by Best Buy. And e-waste in the dump can leach toxins into the environment. So some companies, including Staples and Best Buy, subsidize electronics recycling and take e-waste for free. To find out more, we called up John Shigarian, CEO and co-founder of Electronic Recyclers International. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Tell me, first of all, there's this recent uh, survey from Best Buy which noted that only a third of people, just over a third, actually managed to recycle any of their electronics, though about two-thirds of us really want to. What gets in the way of of us actually recycling all this old electronic junk? (laughs) Well, what gets in the way of most people recycling is uh, apathy or lack of accessibility or knowledge. But once people know how to recycle, where to recycle, Um, most people want to do the right thing. And recycling rates, therefore, uh, are rising. Best Buy has seen their volumes go up year after year with their great recycling program, which they pioneered in about 2007. And so to me, it's, um, it's very encouraging that retailers like them have created a new recycling paradigm, making it accessible for the public at large. And they've led on that, and others have followed. Yes, I believe uh, Staples as well uh, takes recycling. I I don't know who else does. Well, you're right. Staples and Best Buy are the platinum standard. They, they, Because not only do they take uh, old electronics back, but they also have announced publicly that they only allow 
responsible recyclers who are certified to touch those electronics. And that's a very, very important point. So uh, when you say you recycle everything, what kinds of things come out? I mean, is there value to be had from these old electronics that you can actually realize? Well, there's value um, to be had, yes. Everything gets commoditized. So you break down electronics into plastics, glass, and metals. And all that material gets sent off to smelters for a new life. The glass costs us money to dispose of. The metals and the plastics we sell. So uh, give me a ballpark figure for what, a, what you would uh, actually charge someone for a ton of e-waste. 25 to 35 cents a pound is a very typical uh, uh, ballpark uh, figure. So tell me um, a little bit about the, the irresponsible people. I mean, how does it come about that actually e-waste ends up going to irresponsible uh, recyclers? Okay, so if, you're, if you work for the government or you work for a big corporation and they say, hey, listen, your job is to save us money. Your job is to do more with less resources. So now they have a choice. Hmm, this one recycler who came in and he quoted me 25 cents a pound, and I have uh, 100,000 pounds to get rid of. Wow, that's going to cost me a lot of money. But there's another recycler down the street, ABC Recycling. They say they'll come pick up this stuff for free and just take it off. I'll just call up ABC Recycling. And ABC Recycling comes, picks up the material, And they sell this material to the highest bidder. Back in the early part of 2001, 2002, 2003, the highest bidders typically were the people who wanted to mine the gold, the silver, the precious metals out of the electronics. So they would bring that electronic then. They'd buy it and bring it over to some part of China or some part of India or Africa. They don't have the right tools, so they would burn the plastic of the carcass off of it. So that would throw a, a, a toxic uh, and poisonous gas into the air. And then little children typically would be co-opted into the process of doing acid washes to gain the precious metals out of these electronics. Well, first of all, there's human rights violations being done by co-opting children into this. And then people would get injured using these acid washes. That story still continues But the story has taken on even a darker turn. Now the highest bidders, in many cases, are people who have adverse interests to our homeland security in the United States, who just want to buy the electronics from the government and from large corporations just to pull out the hard drives and reverse engineer the information. And then they just dump the carcasses into rivers, lakes, the ocean, or the desert. So that's what's happening with still approximately 80% of the electronics that we're uh, using in this country are still being shipped offshores. And one of those two options are happening to it right now. What, what do you do to make sure that, say, my old computer, when I bring it in, that I have absolutely no idea how to do anything <laughs> with the hard drive off? What, what, what would you do to make sure that none of my data is going to be harvested by anybody anywhere? Well, it's a great question. And the bottom line is we've built the world's largest shredders. So your hard drive would go into our shredders for ultimate destruction. And then the metals that come out of that would go directly to our smelters. What of our various electronics are the hardest to recycle? 
Right now, the hardest things to recycle are tablets because they're built so seamlessly. You know, they're very airtight and built so perfectly. They're the hardest today to recycle. There's still recyclable, but they're typically the hardest. So the things that we like about them, their sleek design, is exactly what makes them really difficult to recycle. You got it. That's exactly correct. John Shigarian is CEO of Electronic Recyclers International. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Coming up, using very free words to explain very big ideas. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Off now to Conyers, Georgia, to check in with Peter Dykstra, publisher of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. Hey, so Peter, what's shaking beyond the headlines today? Well, hi, Steve. This past week, there were a couple of stories that caught our eye about climate change and political mischief. Uh, We learned of the death of Rick Piltz, who is something of a hero in the climate science community, for blowing the whistle nine years ago on the Bush administration's interference with a U.S. climate science report. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about Rick Piltz. He has an interesting history. Yeah, Rick was a senior associate in the administration's Global Change Research Program, the White House office that keeps an eye on climate change, from midway in the Clinton administration to 2005 during the George W. Bush administration. That year, he quit in protest after learning that a climate science report had been edited and altered to downplay climate change impacts and overplay scientific doubts about how the climate is changing. Yeah, and as I recall, he became a classic government whistleblower. If there were a government whistleblower's Hall of Fame, he'd be in. Uh, Rick Piltz turned where a lot of government whistleblowers do to a group called the Government Accountability Project. Together, they took copies of handwritten changes to the science documents to the New York Times, who published them and ignited a little firestorm. Phil Cooney, who had worked his way from being a petroleum industry lobbyist to being Bush's chief of staff at the Council on Environmental Quality, was at the center of the firestorm. Cooney resigned his government job and soon after was hired into ExxonMobil as a lobbyist, where he remains to this day. Rick Piltz went on to run a group in a website called Climate Science Watch, and last year in a video, he said it's a nonpartisan thing. And here's his quote, it's not just one administration, they all need a watchdog. So Rick Piltz fought political interference in science, but uh, you said there's another story about the same kind of stuff. Uh, Yeah, and that's going on right now. Two congressional committees are going after an environmental group for the apparently unfathomable act of communicating with the Environmental Protection Agency. The Natural Resources Defense Council, one of the best-known environmental advocacy groups in the country, stands accused of um, advocating for the environment. Uh, Congressman Darrell Issa, who runs the House Oversight Committee, has taken time from his Benghazi hearings uh, to demand all of NRDC's correspondence with the EPA over 
over that agency's rulemaking to limit carbon emissions. Uh, he's joined in this effort by David Vitter, the ranking Republican member of the Senate's Environment Committee. Both NRDC and EPA say everything's above board, but the legislators smell a scandal, and when you watch it all unfold, you wish there were more people like Rick Piltz to stand up for science and smart policy making. Well, it does take a lot of courage to be a whistleblower. And it seems courage is in short supply to buck the tide on uh, energy and environment issues, especially during this midterm election year. Uh, Climate change is front and center in only a few election races, like the open U.S. Senate seat in Michigan. The best of the worst is possibly the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, where according to Scientific American magazine, just five of its 22 majority party members are on record as affirming that climate change is real. That's the Science Committee, Steve. And the current line to duck any discussion of climate change is to say, I am not a scientist. But some of the same folks who beg off any discussion about climate change because they're not scientists are very, very eager to tell us what to do about Ebola or health care. Only in America. Hey, listen, can you take us back uh, into the environmental time machine? What's on the calendar from this week? 66 years ago this week, a weather inversion trapped the industrial town of Donora, Pennsylvania, inside a cloud of smog, largely from the town's zinc smelter and nearby steel mills. 20 people died within hours, and estimated 6,000 people were sickened as the smoke hung in the air for days. Yeah, and that was one of the early most important events in America's coming to grips with its own air pollution problem. Right, and painfully so. It's not just the health repercussions from pollution, but the town of Denora lost over 5,000 jobs in the next decade as the culprits in the smog disaster, the zinc smelter and the steel mills, closed down. Much of the steel industry eventually migrated to places like China, where they're now just coming to grips with their own Denora-style disasters. Indeed. But one more thought about Denora. Two well-known names from very different fields grew up in Denora around this time. Deborah Lee Davis is a toxicologist and environmental health specialist. She was a two-year-old at the time of the Denora disaster. And in a very different field, and it was uh, usually left field, was Denora native Stan Musial. By 1948, he was well on his way to becoming one of the greatest baseball players of the 20th century. But Musial's father, Lukash Musial, took ill and later died as a result of the Denora smog disaster. Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Peter. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. And now a new book that aims beyond the sky. We're talking about the universe and cosmology, which most of us at best find confusing. The Edge of the Sky by Roberto Trotta aims to simplify and clarify. The book explains the universe in the thousand most used words, or rather the all there is and ten hundred, since universe and thousand aren't on that list. Roberto Trotta studies dark matter and what he calls the dark push and the early all there is at Imperial College in London and joins us. We're happy to have you on Living on Our Homeworld, Roberto. Thank you, Steve. Great to be here. So tell me, what inspired you to use only the 1,000 most common English words to tell the story of the cosmos. For a decade, I've been looking for new ways of uh, connecting people with cosmology, the study of the universe, and the mystery and, and the great sense of wonder that the universe inspires. Then one day, something interesting happened to me. I stumbled on uh, an XKCD cartoon that's a web-based comic uh, series. It was a picture of the Saturn V moon rocket 
but it was labeled using only the most common thousand words in English. And so instead of calling it a Saturn V moon rocket, it was called the Upgoer V, uh, because it's something that goes up, it's a rocket, a rocket is not one of the words. So I thought, well, actually, perhaps, here is a language, here is a format that could be used to get rid of all the jargon that uh, scientists sometimes uh, use to, to talk about their science and talk about the entire universe, that's to say, the all there is, in simple language that anybody can understand. So please share with us some of the most surprising words that are on the list and, and some of the ones that aren't. Well, it was very surprising to me, in fact, to go through the list and see that uh, fairly common words like energy, for example, is, is not on, on the list. Uh, and so I couldn't use energy, I couldn't use moon, I couldn't use science or scientist or physics, gravity. Uh, so all these words that uh, certainly I would have wanted to be able to use to talk about the, all there is were not on, on, on the list. And so I had to come up with this new language, this new way of talking about those notions. Um, there were other words uh, that, that I could make good use of. Uh, thankfully, star was on, on the list, and so I could talk about planets, which I, is a word that I couldn't use, as being the crazy stars, because they go around in a back-and-forth fashion, apparently, on the sky, and so they're like crazy stars. Uh, particle was not one of the words on the list. Uh, television was one of the words. I did use television in the book, but it wasn't one of the words that I necessarily wanted to use. So, Roberto, what did you find most difficult to explain using these 1,000 words in the English language? At the beginning, everything was difficult because it was very hard to come up with uh, metaphorical, pictorial images that would explain those sometimes abstract and hard concepts, dark matter, dark energy, the Big Bang itself, the destiny of the universe, uh, in, in, in simple language. But then, little by little, this new voice started to emerge from, from, from the format itself, and it, and it grew on me, and things became simpler. Um, because I started getting the language, getting the new format, until I got to the point where I wanted to talk about the very early universe, that's to say the very first fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second after the Big Bang, which, by the way, is not called the Big Bang, because bang is not one of the words. <laughs> uh, and, so, uh, and so at that point it was very hard, because I couldn't use Big Bang, I couldn't use uh, fraction, to say fraction of a second, I couldn't use particle, I couldn't use energy, all of these uh, important words uh, weren't available. I couldn't use fog. Now, why, why would fog be important? Well, because the early universe is some kind of high-energy fog, but you know, in the expression high-energy fog, I didn't have energy and I didn't have fog. So what did you choose? So, uh, in the end, I chose a more metaphorical representation of things. And so particles, of which the early universe is full of, became drops. Uh, and, and in particular, then I'm talking about the various kind of drops, that's to say the various kind of particles that inhabit the early universe as if they were characters in a story. And so we meet the uh, simple drops and the very simple drops and, 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 and the heavy drops and the dark matter drops. There's the drop of Mr. Higgs. Uh, there are mirror drops. So there's all sorts of characters that populate the, the story. And it becomes a little bit more like a, like a scientific fairy tale, if you like. Now, of course, you're an astrophysicist, and you use all kinds of complicated language in your business. How might you now see the universe in a different light, having gone through this exercise? Definitely, definitely. Uh, writing this book really gave me a new pair of eyes and, and a refreshingly different and novel uh, 
look on the universe itself. It forced me to really think about those concepts in a new way. One of the aims of my book was to bring back creativity and passion into science. Science, of course, is this very intellectual sometimes activity, but equally it's important to remember that it's a human activity and as such is full of passion and creativity. And, and the aim of the book is to bring some of that back into the story and, and to speak to people's hearts, not to their minds only. Who do you want to read this book? Who do you have in mind? I like to think of The Edge of the Sky as a book for children of all ages. Why is it important to you to make science accessible to, to everyone? There are many reasons, uh, but let me just uh, talk about two. Science is an expensive business, and most of our scientific research, at certainly at a fundamental level, the kind of science that I do, is paid for by taxpayers' money. And so it's only fair and part of the job of, of, of what a scientist should be about to spend our time as professional scientists, some of our time, talking to the public and engaging them in a conversation about why do we need to do this research, what are the objectives of our work, and why do we need to spend money, taxpayers' money, to do it. But also, another reason for me to talk about science with the general public is that science is, is a great cultural activity. Science, in a way, it's akin to the arts. Why do we make a great art? Why do we enjoy going to museums and experiencing art? Because it makes our lives better, more fuller, more worth living in a sense, and everybody should be able to, to participate. This is too, too important a quest to be left to the professional scientist. Now, typically, when you step into a laboratory, you don't see a lot of women, but in your book, the scientist here is a woman. Why? Precisely for this reason. Unfortunately, uh, women are underrepresented in, in science, certainly in my field, and so I, I hope by, by, by this and other means to... Uh, help breaking the stereotype that all scientists are middle-aged, old uh, men in white coat with long white beards and a bald patch on their heads. And we need more women in science. And if by presenting a, a scientist as a female character, I can help inspire some young girls to be interested in science and to pursue a career in science, uh, then that'd be a fantastic result for me. Summarize for me, in your words, in those 1,000 words, what we do need to know about the universe, what you call the all there is. There are many things that are still not understood about the all there is. For example, the big why questions that student people are asking nowadays are, what is dark matter made of? What is the dark push made of that is making the all there is grow faster and faster with time? And uh, we have learned that there is 20 times more dark matter and dark push in the old rays than there is normal matter. And we don't understand this. Most of the old rays is unknown, and we really don't know what it is made of. So those are the biggest questions that student people like myself are asking today, and we hope to be able to find out answers that will help us understand our place in the old rays. Roberto, Chapter 8 of your book ends with a profound statement about the ever-increasing expansion of the universe, the all there is. Uh, please read that passage for us. You can't stop the dark push. All of the star crowds will fly away from us faster and faster, until at some point, far away in time, we won't be able to see them anymore. They will be too far away for the light to reach us. Stars will die, and the star crowds will turn off the older is will become even bigger and almost totally empty. Nothing will be left but dark silence. So how ultimately terrifying is this idea to you that the universe will eventually become dark silence? It is terrifying uh, intellectually. 
um, but not as much as the, the prospect of the, the many threats that are closer to home and closer to us in time, climate change and epidemics, all sorts of uh, threats that are threatening us as humans uh, in, in, in a more direct and, and, and more timely fashion. But certainly if we think about the great grand scheme of things and the great picture of the cosmos that emerges, thinking of a universe that's going to be empty and dark is, is, is pretty scary. By the way, Roberto, in your book you touch on the multiverse theory. Talk a little bit about that for me now and how, how we can try to understand that. The multiverse theory is something very speculative. We have no idea whether any of this really exists uh, out there. But in the book, I talk about it in very simple language. And so I talk about a, a room full of coins with a table where you find 400 coins that are all showing heads. So if you, if you were to walk into such a room, you certainly think that somebody has been there before you and has put down all the 400 coins heads up uh, just like that. And you wouldn't imagine for a second that they've all been thrown up and just landed at random, uh, all heads up. And yet, the universe we happen to live in is as improbable as getting 400 heads out of 400 coins all at once, which is a very tiny, tiny, tiny probability. It's almost zero. And so the big question is, why is our universe so specifically strange? Why is it so improbable? And perhaps the idea is that the dark push, the mystery of the dark push, has something to do with it. Um, and the tentative explanation that scientists are beginning to give is that perhaps it's a question of just having many, many rooms, having many, many flips of the 400 coins, and sooner or later you'll end up in, with one room that has all of the 400 coins in it showing heads up just like that, just by the laws of chance. It's only a question of having enough rooms, and that's to say to having enough universes in the multiverse, a collection of many, many, many different universes, and we will live in one that's just right for us, one that's very improbable, but that happened just by chance. Some people listening to us will say, well, either this all came from a cosmic roll of the dice or a flip of the coin, as you say, or maybe there's God involved. What do you say? Well, certainly, that's, uh, th there will always be this question. Uh, science, even with the explanation, the tentative explanation of the multiverse, is ultimately silent, silent about the meaning of, of physics, the meaning of the universe, and the meaning of facts. And so the meaning of, of, of all our scientific discoveries, the ultimate fundamental meaning of reality and the why are we here questions are, are questions that science cannot methodologically answer, and so it remains for, for each individual to find meaning and, and perspective and, and, and a sense of direction in their lives uh, in, in, any, in any way that's meaningful to them. Before you go, your favorite star? My favorite star hasn't been discovered yet. It's probably a dark star in a dark nebula made of dark matter. <laughs> <laughs> Roberto Trotta studies dark matter, dark energy, and the early universe as an astrophysicist at Imperial College in London. Professor Trotter, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Steve. Great pleasure talking to you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of the team. Our show is engineered by James Kerwood with help from Carlin Daigle. Alison Lerishteen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment 
supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International